Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices again here this week. I'm I'm uh, still broadcasting uh, live from Waikiki, although uh, it happens to be Wednesday at 10:30. So if you happen to be tuned in, wonderful. If not, hopefully you'll be able to check us out on the web page. And we're continuing where we left off last week in the Gospel of Luke. We um, Pretty much completed the first chapter or the first two chapters now we're up to chapter three which is uh starting a, a new look at uh, jesus in particular luke being the consummate historian lists all of those positions maybe i should read this to you actually i i think i mentioned th- um the first 10 verses but i think we're going to try to cover the first 20 or at least to some degree the first 20 verses of the third chapter of Luke. So this is gonna be like a whirlwind zip through as much as we can. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Triconitus and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and uh, Caia. Caiaphas, sorry. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the word of words of Isaiah, the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, every tree therefore that does not your good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and the crowds ask him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Amen. Well, we're going to stop right there, and then we're going to back up to the first verse and uh, start looking and trudging our way through uh, these verses. So he lists here all those who are in positions of magisterial authority within the region of Judea and Galilee, as well as the emperor of Rome itself, 
who were in power at the outset of the ministry, ministry of John the Baptist as a marker for us that we may establish as precisely as we may be as may be possible the timing when he appeared. The Herod, that is the son of Antipas, Herod the Great, you might say, who had been in power at the birth of Christ, had died within a, within a few years or very recently after that birth. And when he died, there was no one among his sons apparently capable of assuming his reign over the entire region where he ruled. So that reign was divided up among two or three of his sons, and I believe possibly a son-in-law as well. And one of whom I believe was later removed by Rome because he was just too plain bloodthirsty and they received too many complaints from the Jews. And that was Archelaus who had ruled in Judea immediately after his father Herod had died. And Archelaus was replaced in the year uh, 6 AD by what was called a Roman prefect. Now actually Pontius Pilate assumed that position in the year 26 AD. He continued through 36 AD. And, and so we know that this time has to be between those two years. But more precisely, we can determine from the fact that we know from Josephus that Tiberius Caesar became emperor in Rome in the year 14 AD. And since um, Luke tells us plainly this was his 15th year, when the Baptist became his public ministry that we now are able to determine with substantial precision, the year was 29 AD. And these dates can be confirmed by numerous extra biblical sources as well, including the historian Josephus. And here we see John the Baptist calling the people to repent and quoting Isaiah the prophet to prepare the way for the arrival of the Lord. So in ancient times, at least during the time in which Isaiah was written, the roads that were used to connect different communities and societies with each other usually amounted to little more than trade routes, which simply were trails packed down by frequent use. And it wasn't until the time of the Romans, really, that roads were made out of significantly durable material like rocks that would last for any substantial length of time. And hence, if you came to a gully, uh, you simply found a way to navigate down into it and up the other side. If you encouraged a large rock, you simply maneuvered around it. And someone who claimed to have the title of king, like Sennacherib or the emperor of Rome or something, planned to visit any of his outlying districts. The custom was to send out emissaries in advance to give notice so that they could make ready and afford to him an appropriate welcome. And that would mean, among other things, to remove any of these obstacles that might might encounter on his trip to whatever degree that they were capable of doing it. And that is they would try to fill in the gullies or remove the large rocks <clears throat> that may have blocked the way. Well, the quotation which John has here from Mosiah is not just to remove rocks or to fill in gullies, but to bring down mountains, raise up valleys, to make smooth the way was not for the arrival of any mere king, but for the arrival of the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts was the God of all creation that Isaiah was talking about, Yahweh, the mighty, the almighty, actually, who was about to make his appearance. That is up until then, whenever the Israelites got themselves into trouble, as they frequently did, due to their hardened and sinful hearts, God always sent them deliverers, such as Moses, and after him, Joshua, and then the whole list of judges like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, or many others. But they would still wander off into their sinful behavior, and after they'd been delivered all these innumerable times and consequently getting themselves back into trouble again and ended up being enslaved all over again. 
So after that, God decided to send them a prophet like Samuel. And then after that, he decided to send them kings like Saul and then David and Solomon, and right on down the list. But that didn't seem to do the trick either because the same problem occurred. and They ended up being carried off into, into uh, captivity in Babylon. So what Isaiah was saying was now the time had finally come. God had given up sending them all these emissaries. He was through with sending them messengers and deliverers to save his people because it never lasted. They always fell back into sin and slavery. But that didn't mean that God was through with his people. That did not mean that God was ready to throw in the towel and say there was nothing more he could do. No, no, no. I mean, yes, God was through with sending prophets and priests and judges and kings to save his people. Instead, he would do it himself. He was going to come in the flesh. And this was what got Isaiah so excited when he writes, now is the time to prepare the way for the Lord, for Yahweh. So when the, John the Baptist quoted these verses and then pointed to Jesus as their fulfillment, he was in effect declaring the very deity of Christ, that Jesus was none other than the very same Yahweh who appeared at the burning bush to Moses, the one who crushed the power of Egypt and brought out the children of Israel from their bondage under Pharaoh's reign. Well, now he's about to appear in the flesh, in person. He would not send a prophet as he did in the case of Moses, and it was the greatest honor of John the Baptist to be the one who was his forerunner in preparing his way before him. And what John says here is that, and it can be very helpful for those who want to understand what it means to prepare the way for the Lord, even now, to come into their own hearts. Just like Mary was a model in a sense for believers, in the understanding that took place, what is involved in the process of regeneration. So John's instructions here are just important from the standpoint of understanding what's involved in the process of making oneself ready for receiving the King of Kings, even into your own heart. To make the way smooth, you have to bring down what is too high. You have to raise up what is too low. So what does that mean for an individual believer? Well, what is too high? Generally, it's one's opinion of oneself. Very few people are aware of the depth of sin and rebellion that lies at the very root of their hearts. In other words, your own opinion of your own level of righteousness is way out of whack. It's way too high. You have to bring that down to reality, which is what the Bible says about man. That is that their hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful, so much so that they cannot even know that. So what else does John say here? First of all, in verse 3, we see that he went all around the region of Jordan to proclaim a baptism of repentance. At that time, the practice of baptism, from a Jewish perspective, had been restricted to the admission of proselytes to the Jewish faith. The idea was that it was sort of a ritual cleansing. Gentiles were considered to be so defiled, unclean, and just as a matter of routine, in addition to all the other necessary steps whenever a Gentile wanted to enter into the Jewish religion, the outward performance of this ritualistic baptism symbolized the needed inward cleansing that had to take place. Well, now John was applying this very same concept, except now he's applying it to everyone. That is, he was applying this outward performance of baptism as a condition signifying the necessary humility and contrition required a true repentance of all Jews. Of course, the Pharisees and religious leaders would have none of it. They refused to humble themselves, and consequently, they met with the wrath of the Lord initially through his very severe rebukes of them, and subsequently through their 
essentially utter annihilation, which occurred in the year 70 AD. But the common people all recognized their need of repentance and came uh, to John. And when they did, what did he say to them? Well, verse 7 says that when he, the crowds came to him to be baptized by him, his typical response was to call them a brood of vipers, and as who warned them to flee from the coming judgment. In other words, he was not calling the Pharisees and religious leaders a brood of vipers. He was calling everyone that. So why would he do that? Well, in biblical terms, who could he be referring to? Well, this is actually the description which God gave to the offspring of Satan in, their book, in the book of Genesis when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for their rebellion. There, God promised to them that one day a deliverer would come to them through the offspring of the woman, and his heel would be bruised by the offspring of the serpent, while at the same time, that is, the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the, the offspring of the serpent. Uh, that's been taken to mean that the offspring of the woman, that is, the deliverer who would come, would kill the offspring of the serpent, although while in the process of doing so, he would himself sustain some temporal injuries to his own body, which were not of a mortal nature. <clears throat> that is, they were not mortal wounds. So who does he mean when he says a brood of viper? Well, he means the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the ser of Satan. And that refers to everyone, frankly, who believes the lives of Satan. So who's that? Well, everyone who has ever been born has fallen into that trap at one time or another. We've all believed his lies to some degree or another. And I can say that because we'd never sin unless we believed his lies in the first place. And the Bible says very clearly that all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, then we are liars. So what John tells the crowds to do is first not to rely upon the fact that they are descendants of Abraham and expect that just because of that, they're going to be recipients of the promise of God made to Abraham regarding his offspring. Simply being a descendant of Abraham is only going to mean, in fact, that they're really no better than any other descendant of Adam. And that is they have all inherited Adam's sinful nature. Everyone who's ever been born since that time, whether a child of Abraham or not, is still in possession of that sinful, rebellious nature they inherited from their first father, Adam. There's no escaping that unless you happen to be born of a virgin who was in actuality a surrogate mother, as was the case with Jesus, but that was only the case with Jesus. So what John is, says here is needed is repentance. And the Greek word metanoia, by the way, for repentance means to have a change of heart or a change of mind. And in order to have any confidence that there has in fact been such an inward change, a radical change, a root change, you might say, in one's heart, one expect, would expect to see certain fruits of repentance, and that is certain changes in one be, one's behavior that would be in accordance with true contrition, humility, and repentance. And that's why it says that the axe has been laid to the root of the tree. Well, trees in biblical jargon, jargon are frequently used to symbolize people. That's why Jesus said the way to tell if a person was right with God was to examine his fruit. Good trees can't bear bad fruit, and bad trees not bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. The figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, when the axe is laid to the root of the tree, it means that true repentance must go down to the very most basic, deepest underlying motivations of the heart, that is, the root of the tree. The loyalties of the heart are either going to be focused on God or they're not. And everything the person does ultimately will stem from in which direction or in which object those loyalties are focused upon. And so what John is saying here is that it's up to you. It's up to the individual person to decide now that you have a chance to do so. God's coming and when he does, you will not be able to hide. All of those ulterior motives are going to be exposed so right now. If you want to be able to stand on that day, it will be necessary for you to make some very radical and some very painful choices. Either you can and will take the ax yourself to these ultimate desires stemming from your most basic nature as an offspring of Adam, a brood of the viper, you might say, or ultimately God will take the ax to you. There's no one who can be excluded from this process. It doesn't matter who your parents are or what were the conditions of your upbringing what side of the tracks you may have been raised on, the utterly depraved condition of the human heart from the get-go, from the moment of its conception is demonstrated from the fact that it's universally opposed to God and everything God stands for. By nature, man is a rebel, whether he may appear to be one outwardly or not, he may be able to fool some, but surely not God. So everyone is really just as much in need of repentance as anyone else. And if you think otherwise, then you're being deceived. And consequently, in probably worse condition than you can imagine. So it's up to you. John lays it on the line. Either you do the repentance, either you do the painful process of cutting out those desires contrary to God's expressed holy will and his word, or God will simply have to cut down the whole tree and throw it into the fire come judgment day, which is, by the way, just around the corner. Luke provides us with some illustrations of what John means by repentance, by answering some of the questions thrown at him by the crowds who come to him and were obviously convicted of their sins by the Holy Spirit. First, he tells them to share their material wealth with those who are less fortunate, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, whoever has food to share with those who have none. In other words, you cannot say you're not your brother's keeper. You cannot say that God is not going to hold you accountable for how you treated your neighbor who was in need when you were in a position to do something about it. Whether you're talking about clothing the naked or feeding the hungry, yes, God is able to do it himself if he wanted, simply multiplying the the lows, as he has, in fact, on occasion done. But why should he do that when he's no real reason? Because he's already given to you more than enough. Of course, he expects you to share that with which he's entrusted to your care with those who may be less fortunate or within your means for providing. Or, of course, he's going to hold you accountable for that. So he expects generosity, for one, on your part to be evidence a changed heart, generosity, integrity, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, patience are all fruits of the Spirit. So basically, the primary means of demonstrating you have a penitent heart is through your willingness to share your possessions with the more needy. In other words, to show hospitality. Now, that's a very big deal in the Bible. So the first step in the process of making straight a highway for our God is what the Bible calls repentance. And that means to Begin putting your reliance on God, putting your trust in God. That's sort of what it means to tear down your own pride and arrogance and thinking you can do it all yourself. Tearing down that mountain of pride 
involves humbling yourself in your own eyes. Stop thinking you don't need God. Stop thinking you're so good in reality. When in reality, I should say, you're not. Tear down that mountain. And the next step is to raise up those valleys. By that, I think what it says, it means what it says there is, in other words, while yes, you are a wretched sinner who needs to repent of ever thinking you can rely on your own righteousness and need to be broken down. On the other hand, God's love for you is far greater than far higher than you ever thought possible or imaginable. You need to be brought up in your expectations and hope of what God's going to do through you once you begin to obey him. Now, that obedience stems from, from your reliance, which comes first. That's why it says, first we must remove the mountains, and then we can raise the valleys. It's not that we obey in order to get anything out of God. We simply obey out of a heart that overflows from love. To God, having trusted in him already for the forgiveness he's extended to us. And that's why John says to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And the production of that fruit will be an automatic response to a truly repentant heart. Any attempt to do it the other way around will have just the opposite effect. In other words, if you attempt to affect repentance through outward obedience, you will do nothing more than to re reinforce your own heart's rebellious pride. So true repentance always must come first, and that means to be willing to say, I can do absolutely nothing on my own, in my own strength, that is of any lasting value. But we can raise up our expectations once we have put our trust and reliance in God and in him alone. That's why when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, the first commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your strength, mind, and put him above any other gods, if you will, that your heart may be tempted to idolize. If you can only obey that single commandment, all the others will fall right in line. The only reason we ever fail to obey, to obey any of the nine commandments, commandments following that on the list is because we've already broken the first commandment. If we had not failed to obey the first commandment, we'd never have any temptation to break any of the other commandments at all. And that's why it's so imperative but the first thing we do is to repent of our lack of love for the Lord. Whenever you find yourself doing anything which you know is not in line with any one of the other commandments, you should re-examine your heart. Repent of the first for the failure to give the Lord the love of which he and he alone is so eminently worthy. You should realize you are placing something else in your mind above the place that rightfully belongs only to the Lord. Whether it's your security and the possessions you've acquired, whether it's the admiration or love of others or other things, whether it's any one of a long list of appetites, be they sexual, culinary, for the arts, for power, for influence, for control, even for privacy. If that usurps or prevents you from obeying God or whatever other ambitions you may have. Sometimes people just want to be successful in life or whatever you may be doing in order to derive the satisfaction you may get from this, some sense of achievement. However, whenever those things begin to replace the one who gave them in the first place, then your priorities are misaligned. They're askew, and you're guilty of idolatry. You're guilty of sin from which you must and can only repent. When you begin to realize the true value you need to place on the giver of every gift, so when you value God in accordance with the true value he merits, in accordance with the true value that he possesses, then that will not be a problem. When that happens, you will love him above everything else or anything else because he is infinitely more valuable than anything and everything else. All those other things, by the way, are simply things which have their true source in him to begin with. 
And this is what John is calling us to repent of. This is what he's calling us to do. It's interesting to see he's not what he's not calling us to do. What does he say to the tax collectors? Well, he doesn't tell them to quit their jobs and find something more respectable. He just tells them to exercise integrity in what they do. In other words, to be honest and transparent about it. So in that sense, he was not influenced by what the majority would have said because they all saw tax collectors to be the lowest of the law. Virtually everyone agreed on that, whether conservative, liberal, Democrat, or Republican. I mean, Pharisee or Sadducee, rich or poor, they all viewed tax collectors with contempt because they saw them as traitors. They saw them as collaborators with the enemy of the Jewish nation, which had been subjected to the rule of Rome only because military mind power of Rome were beyond whatever the little nation of Israel could muster in their own defense. But John did not see it that way. John recognized that all power stemmed from God. And those who exercised it did so only with his approval. So tax collectors were merely submitting to the authority which God ordained. That wasn't something which the Jews in their interpretation of scriptures accorded to them, the privileged position of being the chosen ones in God's sight. And they got that one part right in one sense. The Jews were indeed chosen, but they were chosen to suffer on behalf of the rest of humanity. It wasn't because they were any better than the rest of humanity in God's eyes, even though they may have been privileged to have a special revelation of his will and have received a greater blessing by him in that regard. The problem is that knowing God's will and doing God's will are two completely different things. And Jesus said, it's not those who hear the word of God who are blessed, but those who do it. And the Jews, despite their knowledge of it, were really no better than any of the Gentiles in their obedience to it. And that, of course, was because at heart, they didn't truly believe it. Thus, the need for repentance. And the same is the case with what John replied those which our translator here is called soldiers. Some would say they were actually policemen because Jews were not allowed to join the army. But the word, the word literally translated means those who wage war. So I tend to think of it as those people whom the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. There were many of those who belonged to the army of Rome listed in the New Testament. There was, for instance, Centurion in the gospel, whom Jesus commended for his extraordinary faith. There was Cornelius in the book of Acts, who was the first Gentile to receive the gospel from Peter. So it's most likely that these soldiers referred to here are of the same ilk. Notice John's response was again not to leave their jobs, but to be content with their wages and treat people with proper respect. The way we love God, whom we cannot see, is always manifested most clearly by the way we love others. God has put into our lives. Amen. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time for today's message. So let me know what you think. And if you have any comments or suggestions, just uh, send them our way. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would enable us to apply that which we've heard today so that we may be able to produce the kind of fruit that comes from a truly repentant heart and begin to enjoy deeply growing relationship with you that will be down to the praise of your eternal glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for coming. This is Kim Nicolaides signing off with Heaven Christian Voices here.